All right. Well, good morning. Good morning. Today is 9-11, and if you're old enough, you probably remember exactly where you were on 9-11-2001. I was working at a nonprofit here near downtown Raleigh, and I happened to be working that day with three or four stewardesses. And so as we were watching everything unfold on TV, uh, my reaction was different than theirs because they were on their phone calling their friends to see if their friends were on the planes. But we shared a feeling that all of us shared, I'm sure, was just immense feelings of loss, sadness, the frailty of life, a sacrifice, certainly perseverance later, uh, but also just this deep display of evil on September 11th. And I remember it was a great time to look forward to the day when Jesus would come and abolish all evil. After September 11th, there was a quote from Tolkien that kind of made the rounds. And since then, I've heard many people use it in sermons and talks and whatnot, when referring to what's it going to be like when Jesus comes back. And uh, I've heard different guys use it. The first one I heard use it was Tim Keller on September 16th after 9-11. And he chose this token quote because in it, if you've read The Lord of Rings at all, you'll remember that after the final battle, the leader of the gang, a wizard named Gandalf, has survived the final battle, but one of the heroes of the story, his name was Samwise, the meek one, he'd been injured in the battle, and everybody thought he was going to die, but he didn't. And so the scene when you have this guy Gandalf waking up, this guy Sam, both of them thought they were going to die, and it pictures well what it will be one day when evil is destroyed. Here's the quote. I think it's appropriate here on September 11th. As Gandalf wakes up Sam, he says, Master Samwise, how do you feel? And Sam, he, he lays back and he stares with an open mouth for a moment between bewilderment and a great joy. He just couldn't answer. And at last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. Uh, but then I thought I myself were also dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And Gandalf says, well, a great shadow has departed. This was Tolkien's way of expressing the yearning that we have in the face of evil in our society, certainly on that day in 9-11. Theologians have talked about a time when Christ comes and He sets everything right again. A new Eden, perfect harmony. When Peter preached about this in Acts 3, he said, a time of restoration of all things. Evil is vanquished. Jesus brings in the new heavens and new earth. Amen. We all look forward to that. But it does raise the question, what would God have us do until He puts evil to sleep? What is our part now while we anxiously and eagerly await the coming of Jesus? What if I phrased it in a form of question like this, 
what can you do now to destroy evil, to work against evil? What can you be doing now? You might answer like I might answer. Well, we can work against sex trafficking, right? I want that to end. We can preach the gospel to all nations. That'll certainly help. We can raise the next generation with a Christian worldview. We can act against social injustice and for social justice. We can elect the right politicians. That would help. All of these are ways we can fight against evil, all good ways. But let me ask the question a little bit differently. When the Apostle Paul speaks, how would he say we should be destroying evil now? Now I'm asking the question not of you, but really, how would the Apostle Paul answer? Now this might surprise you a little bit. When Paul speaks of defeating evil, he often does it in the context of your everyday normal relationships. It's pretty amazing. Now, you might say, hang on, you're changing the subject. (laughs) Not really meaning to. I don't want to turn a deaf ear to what's going on in Ukraine. In fact, I got a text this week from a friend who lives and works in Ukraine. He's Ukrainian. And he works with students, and he was texting me. I was doing our student work, and we had to pause for two hours and go underground in the shelter while the planes flew over and we had a bomb threat. I'm not denying that evil. What I am saying is that when Paul talks about this stuff, he puts it here in the context of our relationships. The fight against evil certainly includes more than what we see in our relationships, but it can never be less than that. A couple passages where Paul talks about this. One of them is Ephesians 6. Very famously, he talks about defeating evil and what we can be doing. Verse 11, Ephesians 6, he says it like this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That sounds like defeating evil, right? Stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, against cosmic powers. When he says all this, he's talking about the demonic spiritual world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, he says, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, if you've ever read Ephesians, where does he put this admonishment, this encouragement to stand against evil? He puts it in the section at the very end where he's talking about relationships. Talks about husbands and wives. Talks about parents and children. Talks about vocational relationships. He talks about relationships in the church. And then he says... (laughs) we got to fight evil, guys. He's talking about relationships so much that he has to remind us, remember, your fight's not against people. It's not against flesh and blood. It's because evil comes up so much when you're dealing with people in your life. Of course, the other passage where Paul talks about fighting against evil here is in our text for today in Romans 12. If you're not there already, you can turn to chapter 12 in Romans While you're turning, remember how the whole book is set up? The first 11 chapters of Romans are all about who God is, you know, doctrine. 
But then the next 12 through 16, those chapters are how should we respond to who God is? How should we then thus live? Five chapters of telling Christians how in the world we can live. And there's only one section in these five chapters that talks about defeating evil. And it's here in the context of our relationships. Specifically, it has to do with peacemaking. So what I want to do together today is just to look at what we can be doing in our normal relationships to make everything sad untrue. Let's look here, beginning in verse 17 of Romans chapter 12. Verse 17, Paul writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, don't let anybody ever tell you that the scriptures are not practical. He's going right to your gut instinct here, where you are in the moment of your relationship, because if someone does me wrong in a relationship, I, I want to give it right back, right? Tit for tat. That's my, that's my gut. Uh, come at me, I'll go right back at you, you know. Um, and for many of us, this idea of personal retribution is, even goes beyond your instinct. It's the air that your tribe breathes, right? Where I was raised, man, it was so cool and accepted and even honored to say things like, ah, that guy had it coming. I'm going to give it to him, you know. And, and you let yourself off the hook like a seven-year-old might by saying, well, he started it, so I'm going to get him. You know, that's such an instinct, and it's also embedded here within our culture. But we see here God is calling us to repay no one evil for evil. Verse 18, verse 18, we see the same idea expressed except positively. He restates it. He says, live peaceably with all. Including those who dump on you? Yes, yes. Including those who treat you like trash? Yes. Don't repay that evil. Now let's give this some thought. Let's workshop this a little bit here. Paul is speaking to the gritty, to the normal, not the fuzzy hypothetical. So I want you to pick someone here who does not treat you well. Okay? Maybe not always, but moment to moment, this person does not honor you. Maybe somebody with whom you are now angry. It's okay. You can pick them in your head. Now, don't shout out names. If you want, you can pick two people. If you need help, it's often the people who are closest to you, right? In a shameful way, it can often be your wife or your husband or your kids who aren't treating you so well. Pick one of them and consider this, that God is calling you to both corral and restore your responses to the people who treat you the worst. Listen to what uh, one writer says here. Her name is Caroline Albanese, and, and she writes helpfully of two common responses that we have when people come at us, right? Uh, it's good to hear her wording. These aren't um, novel 
or new, but it's good to hear what she says uh, are common weapons that we pick up with our mouths when people come at it. First is the weapon of accusation. This is kind of the attack response, right? Listen to what she says. We're harsh and abrasive. We come at the other person with accusatory tone. We have no problem telling the other person that he was completely out of line, essentially saying, how could you do such a thing? There's no category for imperfection in our minds. We expect other people never to fail and are devastated when they not only fail, but directly harm us in the process. Accusation is often driven by pride and anger. She's not talking about abusive situations here. Don't hear her crooked. She's talking about the normal, everyday yin and yang of your relationship. We have a problem, for instance, in the Williams household. I should say I have a problem. It revolves around treats, okay? Treats from the store that I want to eat. Things like Coke and ice cream. I will pick them up from the store, the soda, but the problem seems to be when you have six children, your pantry turns into a piranha feeding zone, right? It's a crown, so it's like, if you've ever seen those uh, pictures of piranhas and nothing is left. Yeah, man. Come on up here and we'll do it together. I even try, this says more about me, but I even try permanent marker writing on my Coke. <laughs> this is for pops. Doesn't help. With the ice cream, I'm currently, figure out what this might look like. I'm currently finding places in my house to hide the ice cream. It's not working. So, last night, we're going to dinner in the house. We're, we're, set, we're all coming to dinner. And I'm walking up, and lo and behold, there's this cherry two-liter Pepsi, unscathed, untouched, even still in the food lion bag. It's a gift. I grab it. I cuddle it. I go to open it for me. I never get Coke. And a word comes up from one of my beloved children. Uh um that's not for you. Isaiah has bought that with his own money. It's not what it did. But that's what my heart did. It is amazing how quick my heart is pricked. Oh, you're telling me I can't let me. All these times you did that to me, and now I get. My heart went there. Didn't drink it, but my heart did. <laughs> and that's the kind of thing he's talking about that are evil. Some of you attack in active ways. Others, you might be a little more passive about it, but it's no less dark, right? You'll seek to undermine somebody later. Uh, backbiting and manipulation, those are your tools, those are your weapons. It's evil. The other response, not attacking, the other response that's evil is called avoidance. Again, listen to what Albanese says. She says, we may completely ignore the person. Does that sound like you? Uh, not making eye contact or even pretending that we just don't see him or her. There may be an elephant in the room 
but it feels more comfortable to pretend the issue doesn't exist. We brush it under the rug, may even build up walls of bitterness, even in our hearts. Avoidance can be driven by a fear confrontation. So here's the skinny. When someone does you wrong, you're probably going to want to attack them or avoid them. Two common responses. Or as the writer of Genesis says, the wickedness of man is great. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So here in today's text, Paul is saying, don't do what you naturally want to do. You know what's in your heart? Don't go there. The million-dollar question, of course, is how can we not follow our instincts, right? Pastor Kevin DeYoung sometimes said that he's, <clears throat> he's asked to speak at um, commencements for universities, and he says that he's got one talk that he always does, and he entitles it the opposite of what he thinks they're going to want to hear. He entitles it, whatever you do, don't follow your heart, <laughs> not what graduates want to hear. <laughs> he said, whatever you do, do not do that. He knows what he's talking about. He's being biblical. That's what Paul is saying to you here. So how do we not follow our evil hearts in these situations? Two answers here. Two answers. First is from earlier in Romans. Second is from verse 19. Let's look back. Early in Romans, we could go to a lot of places, but I just want to read Romans 5, verse 3 here. Because here we read Paul, his own testimony is, we rejoice in our suffering. So get his perspective. (laughs) Every fiber of my being wants to retaliate when I suffer. But this guy's rejoicing. How's he doing it? Well, he says, you know that suffer produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us all to shame. He puts a chain together there for you. The chain ends with this. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, Paul will go on to make several points off of that verse, but my point is, let's just remember, according to Romans 5, the very love of God cascades into your heart even now by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have, through the death of Jesus, been reborn by the Spirit, and this rebirth can empower you with the love of God. You have a divine capacity. So let's draw from that well. It was about 1936 when uh, Dale Carnegie came out with his favorite book. Here's the father of the self-help industry and his uh, book I read a long time ago, How to Win Friends and Influence People, right? And in the preface of that book, he wrote something that's now kind of a a myth in our culture, and you see it in Hollywood. In the preface, he wrote this. He said, you know, humans only use 10% of their brain. Now, it's not hard to figure out that he said that (laughs) because his whole life was set up in that book to make money off of you thinking, oh, all I have to do is help myself use more of my brain. Now, modern brain imagery and uh, common sense tells us that's not really true. We're using our brain all the time. It's working. It's pumping blood. It's at work. But Hollywood ran with the idea. You may have seen the John Travolta movie, Phenomenon. Long, 
old movie, but <laughs> the deal is the guy learns how to use all of his brain, and then he starts predicting earthquakes, and he instantly learns foreign languages. Wow. Another movie called Lucy, uh, Scarlett Johansson, uses all of her brain power, and she's a martial arts expert who beats everybody up all of a sudden. She learns it just by using all of her brain. Now, that idea is baloney when it comes to brain potential, but it is helpful to illustrate what it means to respond to hurt. We have a capacity we're not tapping into. Think about this. Think about the two reactions that she said we usually have. We have accusation, we have avoidance. Now compare this to the love of God that he shows us in Jesus Christ. When someone accuses me with their words, I can't wait to get back. But in his death, Jesus did not accuse you, even though you were guilty. Instead, he absorbed your punishment in his death. Jesus made peace between you and God. And today, even today, as Satan accuses you, Jesus is standing before the Father saying, no, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. He's defending you. By God's Spirit, you have this same power in you to absorb evil when someone speaks hurtful words against you. Or or think of your instinct to avoid, right? That's not the love of God that we see in Christ. What we see in Christ is not an avoiding love, but it's a pursuing love, right? Even when we were enemies of God, Christ pursued us. And now he acts as your friend. Richard Sibbs had a famous quote about the friendship of Jesus. He says, the friendship is so sweet, it's constant in all conditions. If other friends fail as friends may fail, yet this friend will never fail us. If we be not ashamed of him, he will never be ashamed of us. How comfortable would our life be if we could draw out the comfort that this title friend affords? It's a comfortable, fruitful, eternal friendship. That's the opposite of avoiding That's coming close. And what I am saying is more than Jesus should be your example. I am saying God has poured out, Romans 5, the Holy Spirit within you to empower you to be able to even befriend those who speak hurtfully against you. So this is one way we overcome our instincts to repay evil for evil. Just remember who you are. Remember that you have been empowered with the Holy Spirit's ability, all of the divine capacity to not repay evil with evil. By virtue of that core identity, you can live out of it. Here's the other way to overcome your instincts. You see it in verse 19. Back in Romans 12, verse 19, look what Paul writes. He says, Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, vengeance is God's turf. That's what he's saying there. The language here is strong. In fact, as I read this verse, verse 19, I wondered, 
And I said to myself, self, how many times in the entire New Testament is this never do something language used? See, here he's saying never avenge yourself. That sounds pretty strong. Well, when else do we see this in the New Testament? As Christians, what other areas do we say never do this? Well, I only found that language here in Romans 12 and Romans 14. Isn't that interesting? Where we're told never, never go there. What are the instances? Well, Romans 14, 13. Talking about making your brother sin, making him stumble, stumble against his conscience. Never do that, says Paul. That's a bad thing. The second one is earlier. Romans 12, verse 16, we're told that we think we're so wise that we sometimes get haughty and we overlook the downtrodden in our society and those who are near us. Paul says, nope, that's forbidden. Never overlook those people. And the third time is here. Never avenge yourself. Well, are there conditions attached? What if I know my wife said something just to hurt me? Can I just try to hurt her back? No, never avenge yourself. But my boss has been against me for years. Now he slipped up. I can get him back. I've got the evidence. Never avenge yourself. I know that girl's been talking bad about me. She said she didn't like the way I handled COVID. Her family responded differently to COVID. Now I have a chance. I'm not talking to her. Silent treatment. No, never avenge yourself. Now let's circle back to the question I asked earlier. How do I not follow my heart into this vengeance? First answer was live out of his power, the divine capacity that you have in the Holy Spirit. The second answer is to Leave it to his power. You see this at the end of verse 19. Paul says, leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, the vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This is the quotation from Deuteronomy 32:35. The author of Hebrew also quotes Deuteronomy 32 when he shares the same quote, and he's uh, addressing deliberate sin. And vengeance certainly is deliberate sin. So what's going on in Deuteronomy 22? Why did he pull this out? Well, you might know Deuteronomy 22 is what we call the Song of Moses. Lyrics about how Israel was given a job to be faithful in covenant with God, but they were fail, and they would earn the exile. But Moses went beyond that. Moses said, I'm looking forward to a time past the exile when people will hurt you, when God will speak in. God will come and God will take his vengeance. Now, how does Paul use this? Well, likewise, he means to take you gently by the hand and avert your gaze away from the silly, puny little judgments that you are trying to enact towards the holy, perfect, divine justice that God will one day bring. That's what Paul's doing. 
For the coming wrath of God is far greater than any broken justice you could ever administer. Both in degree and nature. A day is coming where God will set things right with His power. Everything sad will come untrue. And Paul is saying, look to that day. Now also, notice the language he's using here. He says, leave it. Just leave it. Now I know that the sport of soccer is currently only the fourth most popular sport. And you might not care at all about it, but the World Cup is coming up. People will be talking about it. So you might want to know that this phrase, leave it, is used on the soccer field. If you go to a soccer game, you might hear kids saying, leave it, leave it. And you know what that means? It means that our whole team would be better off if you don't try to make a play here. Leave it. That language is also used in the complex field of animal handling. When I was in college, one of my many crazy jobs was working at a zoo, and I was on a team that trained animals. When I say I was on the team, it means that I just got the fish out of the freezer, <laughs> handed them to the trainer, cleaned up. I wasn't really the trainer, but I worked with the trainer, and did you know we had a sea lion, like a a seal, except bigger, who would do all of these complex tricks, but we call them behaviors, and they're doing tricks, and one of them was a trick where you take this piece of fish, which they love, and you put it where they can see it and smell it, and you put it right down in front of their nose, and you say, leave it, and you train the sea lion to, <laughs> you train him to anticipate the reward that's coming, and then you say break, and he, he gets it, and he's satisfied. I still do this trick with my dog, by the way, with hot dogs. And when I do it, sometimes he'll be laying down, and I'll take it, and I'll put it right on his paw, right there, his favorite snack. And what he does is he makes this face. He's like... <laughs> It's his least favorite trick, is leave it. And you know what? It's my least favorite trick, too. Telling me to leave my personal slights to the vengeance of God? Yes, Paul says, yes. But like the sea lion who waits for the satisfaction that will be greater over time, so too are we to wait for the satisfaction of God's perfect justice in the future. Now look how Paul describes the word vengeance here. What words does he put around it? He said, vengeance is someone's. Vengeance is mine. Possessive. Pastor Crawford Loritz says, to seek personal payback is to trespass into God's domain. It's a helpful image for me. Need to mind my own business, stay in my lane. Vengeance is God's turf. You are not to set foot in there. Never avenge yourself because vengeance is mine. Sounds like the Garden of Eden, right? God said, you can freely do this, 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 and this, but don't, don't touch this. It's forbidden. And of course, our hearts want to touch it, but they will not 
be satisfied. Paul didn't, for your encouragement, just deliver and talk this message. He walked the walk. We have an episode here in the Bible in 2 Timothy 4.14. You might remember reading. Someone had done Paul wrong personally. We think it may have been someone uh, in a legal capacity speaking against him, trying to undermine him. I'm sure Paul was tempted, maybe even to abuse his apostolic authority. But his response was simple. He says in verse 14, this guy Alexander the coppersmith, he did me great harm. But the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He's pushing it forward. He's trusting in the ultimate, perfect justice of God. And he's following Jesus here. I looked in vain in the Gospels to find a moment or two when Jesus was personally slighted and he got back. I couldn't find it. Stands up for other people. Yes, of course. But I'm talking about when people came at him. He left it to God's perfect justice. He entrusted his entire life to the future in time justice of God. Pastor in Australia has a funny story. I'm going to tell it. Uh, Steve McElpine lives in a smaller town in Australia, and you used to see this a lot. I don't know if it still goes on, but in smaller towns, there used to be a time when newspapers would print an article and then they would invite pastors to speak into it. Or, or a pastor would write something and it was just a common thing. This was going on in his town. And there was an atheist writer who would pick at Christianity all the time. And one of the areas that he would pick at is this area. And so this is what the atheist wrote. Okay, this is not a quote from a good guy. This is the bad guy quote. And I'm gonna give you, usually I give you good quotes. This is the bad quote, okay? So here's what the atheist said when he was writing in his column. And he said, Okay, everybody in the, in the column, please turn to Matthew 5.5. 5. He's going to make a point here about Scripture, this atheist is. In his account of the Sermon on the Mount, Matt quotes the Lord. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then the atheist writes, this is a fib that dwarfs Everest. Because they aren't going to inherit the earth and they won't. Not only do the meek not inherit they're very rarely mentioned in the will. Name me one place on earth that the meek inherited. One time in history. That's how the culture views this idea of not repaying evil for evil, of meekness. Uh, so I found the pastor McElpine's response very helpful. He listened to his response to this atheist. He said, why do we as Christians believe that the meek will inherit the earth? That is, by the way, a quote from Psalm 37 about the righteous Israelite inheriting the promised land in the face of tyranny. We don't believe it because we're stupid or because we're hopelessly optimistic, but because of our eschatological end times hope born out of the resurrection of Jesus. Eschatologically, eschatology drives our commitment to leaving vengeance to the Lord. Eschatology drives our belief that the meekest man ever to live who on the cross asked for forgiveness for his political and religious enemies has been given all authority on heaven and on earth. And the same Jesus who will one day share his inheritance with his people and met out vengeance upon all for whom it is deserved. Don't follow your heart into vengeance. Leave it 
to God's power. So if we can't take vengeance to destroy evil, what can we do in our relationships? Well, verse 20 answers that. To the contrary, notice the contrast language there. To the contrary of taking vengeance, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Basically, like George Costanza, do the opposite of your instincts here. He's repeating Jesus. He's repeating what Jesus said in Matthew 5. But I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. That doesn't sound right. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him. The other also. That's their way of talking about insults. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Don't let the familiarity of these verses lessen the force. Paul has encouraged you to look for ways to love your enemies. Dude, look. Seek out ways to love your enemies. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. If your wife insults you in front of his kids, do the dishes. If your coworker that hates you says something mean, and later you're eating with your other coworkers, point out that guy's strengths. Don't repay evil for evil. Why, says Paul? Well, here he gives a weird reason. He talks in terms that are confusing. He says, for by doing so, loving your enemy, you're going to put burning coals on his head. What in the world does that mean? Well, best we can tell from, again, common sense and the Old Testament. Places uh, like 1 Samuel are helpful here, or 2 Samuel 22. Burning coals are not good. <laughs> They're not something you want. It's a form of judgment a sign of judgment. So picture the scenario here in your mind. Paul is saying, let's say you're repaying your enemies with love instead of retaliation, right? But they continue to sin and they continue to reject God. What happens then? Well, John Piper writes here, our desire is that they would repent and come to a knowledge of the truth. But if they don't, the very love that we are showing increases the weight of the wrath on their head. The more of God's mercy that people reject, the more coals of fire will be heaped on their head. But again, notice the justice is met out by God in His perfect dose, in His perfect timing, not by you. The love is met out by you. The justice by God and God alone. It may be helpful here to remember that this is no less than the gospel itself in action. Think about your own story for a minute. Think about your conversion story. You were an enemy of God. A follower of Satan's schemes and strategies. Even still, God pursued you in love. He sent His only begotten Son to live perfectly and then not just show you the way of love, but while you were still enemies, He embraced you. And of course, no 
greater love as anyone than to die laying down their life for a friend. This is what Jesus did for you. He rose again on the third day to solidify your future hope. And when you love your enemies, you live out the gospel in a distinct, unique way. I don't know if you've ever heard about a missionary family that lived in India in the late 90s. The Staines family, wife Gladys, husband Graham, a couple of kids. They were medical missionaries, among other things. And it was Graham's practice every so often to go visit in some villages. And he would take his kids with him. One day he does that. He visits a village with his two kids. And they spend the day teaching, gathering, fellowshipping. And at night it was their practice to sleep in their car so as not to trouble anybody else. And it's comfortable, big station wagon. They slept there in the car. Later that night, a mob of Indian extremists came, lit the car on fire, Everyone inside perished. Later, when they caught the leader of the mob, they gave him a lesser sentence because he said, I was just trying to teach Christians a lesson. At the funeral of her husband and the kids, Gladys had a chance to repay evil for evil, and she chose not to. Instead, she said, yes, we are deeply hurt. But still my prayer and desire is that these people who took my husband's life will be touched by Christ's love so that they will never do this to another person. Even afterwards, she continued to stay there and love the Indian people. She lived out of her divine capacity. She left it for Jesus Christ to make it right one day. And so can you. Final in this text, verse 21, kind of serves as a wrap-up verse. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. What we do with our daily personal relational evil we face is intimately connected to the banishment of all evil one day by Jesus Christ. We trust forward to a God who's going to make everything right. Your way of trusting forward and displaying that you actually believe God will one day recreate the heavens, new earth, may be the best ways, certainly in this context, for you to show your trust is to stamp out evil in your relationships by loving instead of repaying evil. Earlier I quoted Tolkien's character in The Lord of the Rings, Samwise, as he was awoken to a new day. But I didn't finish the quote. I think I'll finish it now. And I would like you to just listen and hear one description of a world being renewed by love overcoming evil. Then the wizard laughed and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as Sam listened, the thought came to him that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he'd ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased and his laughter welled up. And laughing, he sprang up from the bed. And he said, how do I feel? He cried, well, I don't know how to say it. I, I, feel, I feel 
He waves his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. Oh, what a glorious day it will be when our great King Jesus comes and tramps out all evil. He'll renew all things. And until then, let's strive together to destroy evil in the here and now, especially in our personal relationships. Let's pray together. This week I was encouraged by a prayer that I read online. I'm going to pray it with you now. Heavenly Father, forgive our vindictive thoughts. Vengeance belongs to you and not us. You're not indifferent or unable to take care of such matters, for as Daniel 2.21 teaches, you control the course of the world events. You dispose, king. You set up others in a most sobering and profound way. You will get the last laugh, God. A laughter that fills the courts of heaven now and echoes through the history of redemption. On the calendar of your holiness and grace, you have set the perfect date for the eradication of all wickedness and evil. You're not slow in keeping your promise to bring judgment. You're merciful in keeping your commitment to redeem a family as numerous as stars and sand and dust. Thank you, Father. And God, in the coming hours and days and months, free us up to be way more preoccupied with vulnerable children and hungry stomachs in Ukraine than things in our culture that we might perceive as personal slights. The rising of gas prices, falling stock values. God, you don't owe us an explanation of everything you're up to. Father, just keep giving us tons of grace to respond with unceasing prayer and generous giving and gospel courage to live in love. God, take our little prayers and mobilize legions of angels. Take our five pieces of bread and two fish and feed multitudes. Replace our fear with faith our anger with love, and the odor of our self-interest with the aroma of your kingdom. And may this gospel love and generosity go viral. I pray this for me first and also for this church. Amen.